0: Hosanna. I uh yeah, that was the kids got shy. And that's a shame, so I'm gonna need some help. Uh Hosanna! First try! Well done, grown-ups. That's amazing. Uh, I'm proud of you. Usually the grown-ups are recalcitrant, and the kids do the thing, but that's all right. Um I always love um, Palm Sunday stuff. Like Some of you guys that know me know uh, I love to ask about anything that we do in church. Despite having grown up in the church, son of a preacher, like, um, well, why do we do it? Why do we even do communion? And then people tell me, well, this is the reasons we've been doing it for thousands of years, so maybe just have a little bit of humility. I'm like, okay, fair enough. But uh, uh, the procession, the Palm Sunday one, uh, it, it's it, Heavily in the category of because it's really fun is part of it and delightful for kids to do it. And that it's okay for kids to be delightful and fun. In fact, there might be something that's kind of important about it. It's the same reason we have kids' choirs uh, at the Christmas Eve service. It's not because they're the best singers, because um, I'm the best singer. So, oh. um, <laughs> so it's delightful. But it is still odd. Right. If it was a normal thing, it's fun, but if it was normal, we would just do it every week. Right. Which, I mean, if you guys want to put in votes for weekly hosannas, I like am up for it. We can talk about it. Um, but there, there may be some some other reasons besides the delight and joy of it. Um, so we should probably read the scripture. Um, I'm going to read from Luke so we can have some gospel variety about the same story that Daniel read. This is from Luke uh, 19, 28 through 40, from the New Testament for Everyone version. Um, With these words, so we're transitioning out of one story into another. Um, If you want to know what the words are, you'll have to look at Luke 19, 27. But that's something you can do on your own time. With these words, Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As they came close, as near as Bethany and Bethphage, At the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. Um, And as you arrive, you'll find a colt tied up, one that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you untying it? You should say, because the master needs it. The two who were sent went off and found it just as Jesus had said to them. They untied the colt, and its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? Because the master needs it. They replied, they brought it to Jesus, threw their coats, cloaks on the colt, mounted Jesus on it. And as he was going along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the ground. When he came to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to celebrate and praise God at the tops of their voices for all the powerful deeds they had sang. Welcome, welcome, welcome with a blessing, they sang. Welcome to the King in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on high. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, stop your disciples. Tell them to stop that. Let me tell you, replied Jesus. If they stayed silent, the stones would be shouting out. So this isn't in the story of the gospel, the only time Jesus came into Jerusalem. Um, And he didn't do this the other times. In fact... Lots of people came in Jerusalem without it being a massive processional with a stolen colt or however that part of the story works. I did not look into it. I've always been fascinated. Like, was that just like a clever con? Like, oh, the master. Oh, okay, the master. Which master? My master? I always wondered. It's just like a cool thing to say. Try it out sometime. Like, why are you taking these bananas? The master needs them. Don't try it out. Um, So it was odd. It was an odd thing for Jesus to do as well. It's very particular. Um, Jesus spent a lot of his ministry preaching in different places and ways, but he only does a certain number of like particularly theatrical acts. Lots of times people gather because when this really charismatic teacher who incidentally heals people, drives out demons, and feeds people is around, you want to check that out. But this time he is doing something that draws attention. It is a Theatrical and political act it is an act of spectacle that is creating. Spectacle is really important in our common life. I Sometimes I think the Western mindset tends to think, well, okay, maybe it's just me. Like, tends to think that spectacle isn't important. Like, I just want, just the facts, ma'am. Like, I just want the information. We're just going to do an analysis Like, Like, don't don't do a big show. show. Like, Like, if it's showy, then it's just just the WWE WWE, as far as as I'm concerned. Right? Oh, I stepped stepped on some some toes. toes. Uh, But But the truth is that we need spectacle spectacle to understand things. And that spectacle 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 is actually what drives things home and is really important. If you you think about the history of political expression within your own lifetime, Um, which, admittedly, these references are going to be dated for some of the younger amongst you, but um, you'll remember important moments. Think about, perhaps, an important inauguration of a president where something happened in the inauguration, which is a massive spectacle. The swearing-in, you guys remember, the swearing-in is like 90 seconds. Like, do you do the Constitution? Yeah, I'm good. Like, they could do that in a back room and be done. But they do an all-day thing, and they make a big show of it. And that's for a reason. For me, the last inauguration was a really emotional and powerful thing. I listened to it on the radio in a Steak and Shake parking lot. And yet, I cried. I cried at that poem because it was important for me. There have been other moments. Regardless of of various expressions, think about when Reagan went to the Berlin Wall to make a speech, and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You'll remember that. It, It was a spectacle that mattered. Remember, and I don't, but I've seen it on the TV, when Neil Armstrong says that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That was on the moon. Um... We didn't need to go there, but we did. And it had a lot of good effects, but it was also a spectacle. So spectacle matters is my argument. And I hope that you can, if none of these examples resonated with you, or if you're young enough that you don't know what I'm talking about, you can remember something that the spectacle made an impression. I'll bet you can. And so that's what this was. It was a spectacle that Jesus created on purpose. He did it for A variety of reasons spectacle was just as important then as now uh, if not more so in some ways on account of having much less television than we have today Uh, making a show was a way to really really make a point what Jesus is saying coming in in this way is I am the king I am the coming king and he comes in peaceably on a donkey, as Daniel pointed out when he was reading, not on a war horse, okay? The difference here being not I am the conqueror, but I am already the king of this place. I come in with no army. I come in not mounted on a charger with a sword, but on a donkey because this is already my kingdom. And this is echoing not only the scripture, the prophecy is foretold, but many times throughout the scripture, prophets and King David, they come in on a donkey, right? The people of Israel are a mountain people for the most part. So donkeys make sense for them. They're sure footed. Chargers are for people coming from the outside to conquer. And that's how Pilate comes into the city on a big horse, because Pilate comes in from the outside to say, I own you, I take you over. And Jesus says, I'm already your king. Jesus is making that statement because it's true. Because he really is the king of the Jewish people. And he's making that statement, I think, because it had to be said. Because the rocks would cry out if he didn't. And giving the people the opportunity To shout that out, to shout Hosanna, to shout welcome, to shout save us was an important thing to do at that time. He also did it knowing that he had been cagey in his ministry in some ways. He had been avoiding getting killed in some ways by occasionally supernaturally disappearing from crowds and being careful with what he said. One of my favorites being when they ask him about taxes, is like, "Oh no, let me see a coin." Well, if that's got Caesar's face on it, Caesar can have it. I don't want it, um, which is a great way to dodge and establish like my coin is of the kingdom. Coin is not important, but he, it's also a great way to not get arrested for being a rebel right out of the gate. But when you come into town. And proclaim yourself the king and allow people, as the Pharisees point out, like, stop them from saying this, to declare you the king. Now you're a rebel. Because Rome is establishing control for a long time over this area. And So Jesus knew what he was doing there, too. And people respond. And they say, yes, Jesus is the king. And they're very excited about this. He's the Messiah. And they were right. He was. And he is. But they were wrong. Because the conception of the king, of the Messiah, was in the mode everyone would expect. If someone was going to come and and liberate a place, you wouldn't think, you know, spiritually, spiritually. You would think, no, with an army, with we would rise up and rebel and overthrow our oppressors, you know, like you do. And that's what they had in mind for what a Messiah was. There had been many rebels that had gone before and would come after Jesus. The violent, temporal, rebel Messiah figure is like an icon and a trope in ways for the people. And that's what they thought Jesus was. Probably a lot of his disciples... Despite a lot of the stuff he had told them, we're on board with that concept. You know, we remember that, that Peter gets himself a sword um, for later ear cutting. But that wasn't what God had in mind. God's concept of kingship and what it is to be the Messiah is not correct. They were right. They responded Hosanna, and they should because that's true and right. But their understanding of what that meant was 100% wrong. How often do you think that we maybe respond right to something in the world or something that God is doing and are 100% wrong about like what that really means, how it really works, how it plays out? How often do we not get it? And I know I'm looking at you guys and you look like, well, we, well, I think we get it. We're all very cool people. But I have to ask, in your lifetime, if you think over your whole lifetime, have you ever changed your mind about something? Have you ever changed your mind, not just about like what, like, like I, I used to not like corn on the cob. Uh, and I changed my mind. I like it now. But that's not very important. <laughs> have you ever changed your mind about something that was important? Like a value maybe. Maybe something you held to, maybe something you thought was really moral and good in some way, and then you're like, oh, I got it wrong. I know for me, I've changed my mind about a lot of things, about a lot of things about the way people of color have been treated in this country and understanding how that affects them going forward in ways that I looked at very differently as a a different and younger person. And I'm sure I'm still wrong about a lot of those things. How many things have we learned? You know, we're not born into the world knowing everything. People with children say, amen. Thank you. There's a lot to learn along the way. There's information we just don't have. We have to pick it up and we have to learn it one way or another. So I think if they could have been so right, so right that they were enacting something there, that the stones would have done had the people not done, and yet so deeply wrong about what it meant that we should be gracious with our brothers and sisters who maybe haven't gotten something yet. Or maybe ourselves, maybe we're wrong. And what would it look like to be humble in the face of important things? Things about God, maybe even, and to be open about some of that stuff. But, if we suddenly are trying to live in this humble space where we're like, well, I'm not sure about everything. And especially if we want to be really open-minded about some of this stuff. Where does that leave us? How can you live a life if you don't know anything for sure? If you don't have anything that, that you're right about? And I think this is a really, really important question. Um, The question of assurance is sort of the the Jesus-y, religious-y word for it. There are stories of people um, under a particular kind of Calvinism, which is a flavor of Christianity, um, philosophy, that they were taught at the time that you can't know if you are elect, if you're going to be saved or not. Like, there's no way to know. Like, just try to do your best and maybe you'll get real lucky about it. It's sort of the concept. And there's a story, and I won't tell you what they did, of a person who this deep unassuredness went so hard for them, they did an unspeakably evil thing so that they could be confirmed that they were going to hell. Because they would rather go to hell than be unsure if they were going to heaven, which was their concept of it. So... Being unsure is a terrible burden. And I don't want to leave you with that. When I was talking to Daniel, I was really excited about this humility concept. And he's like, Carl, you can't leave people like that. I was like, that's fair. And it reminded me that this faith thing and practice that we do, it's not something we do alone. We're not just out here by ourselves doing religion, doing faith stuff. And it's also not about a quiz where You know, you get to the pearly gates and you fill in like it's like a 30 question, multiple choice, and then, you know, hopefully get a good grade. That we are engaged in this pursuit, this faith with God. It's a relation thing with with God himself. God with us, not distant. So we're not alone in this question of assurance. It's not really about what we we know it's about something else. And so I think it's, it's vital to say, how does God react to our error? How does God react to our confusion and, and misunderstanding? Wouldn't you know it? There's more to this Bible verse I read earlier. We can keep going. Luke 19, 41 through 44. Jesus, when he came near the city, when he came near and saw the city, He wept over it. So he's just been going through this possession. He's chosen to be seen as the king. And the people are celebrating and they're happy. And he wept. He didn't weep because he was mad about them getting it wrong, right? Like, when you're mad, you like get angry and you shake your fist and you say mean stuff. But he wept and he said, if only you'd known. He said, on this day, even you, what peace meant, but now it's hidden and you can't see it. Yes, the days are coming upon you when your enemies will build up earthworks all around you and encircle you and squeeze you in from every direction and they will bring you crashing to the ground, you and your children within you. They won't leave one single stone or another because you didn't know the moment that God was visiting you. He's brokenhearted at how they didn't get it. He affirms the Hosannas. He says they did right. If they didn't do it, the stones would do it. But they don't get it, and it breaks his heart because he knows that affirming the way of the Messiah as a violent, temporal king will and does lead to the destruction and raising of the city of Jerusalem, that these people and their descendants will bear a real-world pain from this misunderstanding. The passage echoes for me, uh, also from Luke, but the same words are in Matthew as well. It's fascinating, because it's before in Luke and it's after in Matthew. This, this piece, depending on the gospel, flanks the triumphal entry where Jesus comes into town. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, you kill the prophets and stone the people sent to you. How many times did I want to collect your children like a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would have none of it. Look, your house has been abandoned. Let me tell you this. You will never see me until you're prepared to say a blessing upon you. Welcome in the name of the Lord. Jesus' response to this calamity is the desperate desire to gather in children. When he says, you stone the prophets, he's not saying, like, I'm mad at you because you, he's saying, I sent you a medic. I sent you a messenger. I sent you love. And you wouldn't take it. I'm trying to help you. I wish I could gather you in. I wish I could hold you. There's a Keith Green song, and I love love Keith Green so so much. He's he's gone gone. now, and I hope that I'll see him again one day. The song is, is Asleep in the Light, and it's about churches that are not being thoughtful to carry the love of the good news to the world. There's like a bridge at the end, and it seems almost to come out of Keith's heart, embodying Jesus, he says, Come away. Come away, come away with me, my love. Come away from this mess. Come away with me, my love. And I, I imagine Jesus is speaking that to his people, to his church, to his beloved, that he just he wishes he could just gather them up and that they could avoid the calamity that's coming that they're not ready to see. That's God's response. To us, not being sure, it's overwhelming love. It's a love that breaks down barriers and finds a way. It's a love that is self-sacrificing, that led God to give himself for us. It's a love that defeats death because of its strength and resilience and power. It's a love that while we were his enemies, that we wanted Jesus to live our way, Instead of us live his way. While we were in that mindset. That. It's Sunday. Friday. Jesus is crucified. In this place. In this mind. Ready to do that. Because that's how much he loves. I I want you to know. I'm glad I tossed off. The humility thing. Think about it for a minute. But this is the thing you need to go home with. Look at me. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you, okay? I asked him the other day, and he told me so much that I was a ball of tears at a freaking diner. I could hardly get out of the seat. He really, really loves you. And I know that's hard for some of you to hear. That's what I want you to know. And I want you to do two things. And in order to tell you about the two things I want you to do, I want to tell you a story about my son Amos. Amos is a treasure in a handful. I would gesture at him, but he threw a giant fit, would not come to church, which is very Amos. It was like we could make him come, but then we'd have to take him home immediately. Amos, in the morning, has two modes right side of the bed, wrong side of the bed. On the right side of the bed day, when Amos comes down, he's all smiles. He just wants to cuddle and hang out and talk and and be buddy. Um, He'd be like, did you get your coffee? And I'll say yes, because I always get my coffee. A bad day, a wrong side of the bed day is not the same. He comes down mad. You hear him stop. He slams the door. Coming out of the bedroom, he stomps down the stairs. And all he wants is to cuddle with his mother and for no one to look him in the eye. And one day, I had the misfortune to exist in the house at the same time. More fool eye. And he came down, and as soon as he spotted me from across the room, Gooey! Away! Gooey, away, daddy! Gooey! Away! Gooey! Away! I'm going to hit you! I'm going to hit you! He likes to announce it. And I said, Hey, whatever you need to do. And he came over and he's hitting me on the knee Go away! Go away! And he starts crying Go away! Go away! Go away! And I just reached out. And he climbed up into my arms. And he said, Go away! Go away! Go away. I hit you. You can stay. Go away! You can stay. And then he sat quietly and I held him with his his head on my shoulder for like 10 minutes. I think children, their minds get twisted up, but their bodies can be so wise and that they don't have the insulation that grown-ups have to the truths that their bodies are telling him. He knew he needed to be held. He was in a bad spot. He was all upset. He needed comfort. He needed assurance. And he allowed his body to take him to that wise place. And by God's grace, his human father, for a minute at least, <laughs> listened to the Heavenly Father and gave him the embrace. God and I held my son together. And he got what he needed. And he got the, the love and assurance that he needed. And so as we pursue this question of how to live, what does assurance look like? When we, we know we may be wrong, we're likely wrong. I think that God's assurance... Is love. And so I want to teach you, ask you to do two things. Here's number one reach up for the Father. You don't have to do it physically, you can if you want to. Reach out. You can reach out. With your body, you can reach out. With your heart in prayer, in song. There's a lot of ways to reach out to the Father. And I know that not everybody has a powerful emotional experience of feeling God's love. And that this may ring difficult for some of you. And I'm sorry. I pray, God, that you would meet people in that place. But I encourage you to reach out with the, the loving arms of God will give you the assurance. But because it is hard and because God in the physical body is not with us now, he has given us another thing I need to ask you to do. Reach out to each other. It's our job to be God's arms. It's our God, job to be God's little kiss and lips. It's our job to hold each other. That's a big part of what this whole church thing is about. That's a whole part of why we're here on earth. It's because God says, I love you so much. I want to make it your job to love people. And you're going to feel my love flow through you. And so we need to reach out and be ready and be, be there for each other. In love. Will you guys stand? I didn't uh, prep any prayer team for this. Uh, but if, if you're willing to pray for people today, it's an important day for that. So would you just find your way to the sides of the room? I won't forget. Consent, I think, is important to God, actually, as well as man. So uh, only the hug those who want to be hugged. But there are many ways we can extend the arms of love to each other. Um, And I want to encourage you after communion, if you would like to ask for God's love today, if you'd like to reach out, that these people will reach out for you. And maybe you could reach out to each other as well.